This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. So I don't know, uh, it's baseball season. Uh, my, uh, my one son who plays college ball, they're playing their first series right now down in Alabama. It's crazy to think about, right? In the middle of February, baseball season's begun. Spring training's coming, which Gus is talking about baseball. And of course, of late, unfortunately, what's been in baseball has not been good news. There's been this big hullabaloo over the Houston Astros stealing signs uh, during the 2017 season. Those of you unaware of that, um, sign stealing has been common part of the game for since the game began. Right. If you can get a look in to see what the catcher is telling the pitcher to throw, and you can somehow communicate that to your batter, that's an edge. And it, it is, it's happened within the game, in the context of the game. It happens. It's part of gamesmanship. So that's why, I don't know if you notice, if you watch this kind of stuff, there's a runner on second, and he's able to look in and see the catcher. Well, the catcher will throw down multiple signs. Why? Because he doesn't want to tip off what's coming because he doesn't want the guy on second to have a, be able to communicate to the batter uh, to know that a fastball is coming or a curveball is coming or something like that. And, of course, if you figure it out, I, I you know, well, I, I'll say this. We taught our players if they figured out they had sort of little signals, you know, if they figured out what it was, they would turn their back to you and do something with their hair and everyone know, okay, he's, he's figured out what's coming and then he would do little things. I mean, watch this in the games, right? If you see a guy in second and he's doing stuff like looking to third like three times, he's probably figured out something. There's probably a fastball coming and he's telling the guy uh, batting that it's coming. Or if you watch the hands, if they do this or do this, hold their gloves in different ways, signals. It's, it's part of the game. It's what you do. I used to coach, coach first base when I coached a while, and sometimes these, these catchers wouldn't uh, hide their signs because they would be open, right? And I'd be looking in there. I'm like, oh, he gave me the signal. I know what's coming. And, and so I would have little words or stuff I would say to the batter that would give them a heads up that a fastball is coming. Didn't do it too often because you don't want the other team to know that you know, and you don't want to give the, the catcher who's dumb to open his legs and education. So you just kind of did it every now and then. Um, that's just part of the game. I confess, sometimes I would like tilt my hat at an angle. So it would look like I was looking this way, but I was actually looking this way. <laughs> and see if I could see it. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? No, it's not. It's part of the game. It's part of the game, right? So sign stealing has been part of the game for, for forever, and there is an acceptance to it as part of gamemanship inside the game. The problem with what the Astros did is that they went above and beyond. They crossed the line. What they did was they used modern technology. They set up a camera out in their home stadium, and they were able to film into the catcher. The cameraman would then signal somehow to someone in the dugout, and the guy in the dugout they had an elaborate system of banging on the trash can. They would then signal what the pitch was coming. That was the plan, and it's pretty elaborate, I know, and it was cheating. It was not within the realm of gamesmanship. It was in the, definitely the realm of crossing the line of cheating, of doing things that gave you a far than uh, a, a competitive advantage that was inappropriate. And so there's been a lot of anger. There's been a lot of upset about it. The Astros, people came down on the Astros. Major League Baseball came down on the Astros. Fines and suspensions. Uh, Astros fired their general manager and manager. 
the general manager of the Boston Red Sox was a guy that was on the staff for the Astros. He got fired, let go. Um, a player that was on the Astros team became the manager of the Mets. He was let go. I mean, this thing is just blown up. And there's just, I mean, people are hot about this. Well, not all people. Some people in Dallas, a diner in Dallas, Texas, had a little bit of fun of this. I checked this sign that was out there. Had a funny sign planned for this week, but the Astros stole it. <laughs> hey, you got to see the humor, right? <laughs> anyway, now you wonder why people are so upset. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was telling me that one of the things that surprised him was just how other players, other teams, how mad they are about this whole thing. I mean, the Dodgers who lost the World Series are furious. Some of them are, are saying, this is, this is unbelievable. And you're like, how is it that they're so mad? Why are they so mad? Well, it points to the truth that way we live, we have this, this, this sense of fair, right? We have the sense of right and wrong. We have the sense that if you play by the rules, then you will uh, have good things. If you don't play by the rules, if you break the rules, if you violate the law, then you deserve punishment. You deserve to receive whatever, is the, whatever the law dictates for lawbreakers. And what we get is, is that when we discover people who have broken the law, we know of people that are treated unfairly, unkindly, unjustly, yet get away with it, it invokes anger, it invokes rage, it invokes a passion, it invokes uh, the biblical term, the desire for wrath. It, it's, it's normal, right? We want people to get what they deserve in the land of fair. If you break the law... You escape the penalty if you, well, no. If you break the law, you suffer the penalty, right? If you keep the law, you escape the penalty. That is fair. That's right. That's how things are meant to be. People need to get what they deserve. Well, we now come to our point in our story where we find our main character, the character in the book, Jonah, throwing a fit because he believes that certain group of people didn't get what they deserve, and he's mad about it. He's mad about it. In fact, he's mad to the point of, I would say, throwing a fit. I mean, I'm thinking like throwing a fit like a two-year-old rolling on the ground saying, I'm going to die. He's mad, and he's mad at God. I mean, this guy is not the brightest, sharpest knife in the drawer, right? He tries to run away from God, and now he's mad at God, and he's mouthing to God. He's mad because... He believes that the Ninevites deserve punishment, but they don't get it. Now, if you're familiar with the story, let's take a little quick recap. God comes to Jonah, who is his prophet, and he says, Jonah, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians, if you remember, were a nation of bad dudes. They had committed atrocities. They were wicked. They were evil. They were the fear of the known world at that time. And so he says, go to, to Nineveh and preach the message I'm about to give to you. Preach this message of judgment, really, we discover. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. Nineveh is northeast. Jonah decides, I'm going southwest. Jumps on a boat, tries to escape from God. God sends a wind while he's on the boat that comes into a storm. The storm is so violent, creates a crisis that the sailors fear for their life. They discover the reason for this storm is Jonah. Jonah tells them, hey, if you want to be, uh, you want to be free of the storm, throw me over into the water. 
Now, just a quick note, you know, Jonah could have repented at that moment, but he was still bent on not doing what God wanted him to do. He said, I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do. So he has him thrown into the water. He thinks he's going to die, but God sends a great fish who swallows Jonah and rescues him. And Jonah finally comes to his senses, right? In chapter 2, he offers up a prayer of repentance where he says, uh, I was wrong. I appreciate what you've done. This, this is a means of salvation. You have saved my life. I honestly will not go my own way, but instead I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to give myself to service for you. And, and so he's given that opportunity because the fish uh, vomits him out onto the beach. And God, the Bible says, Tim talked about this last week, it says the second time God comes to him and says, Jonah, remember the assignment. Here it is, second time. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and I want you to preach a message that destruction is upon them and will come upon them in 40 days. So that's what Jonah does. He's obedient for the first time, motivated to preach this message of destruction to the people of Nineveh. He preaches, and what happens? Well, the whole city turns to God. They repent. They, they outwardly demonstrate their sorrow for their sins, sackcloth and ashes. They even have their animals join in in this. And so they turn their, their lives over God, they repent, they basically say, uh, this is all we got, God's impending judgment is coming, we deserve it, but perhaps if he sees us repenting, he will relent. And the Bible says is that God sees their response, and we learned that our God is gracious and kind and responds to repentance of people, and that's what he does. He does not bring about the calamity he promises. He changes his mind, some translation says, and does not destroy Nineveh. And this ticks off Jonah. Jonah throws a hissy fit. He's mad. He's mad because God did not give the Ninevites what they deserved. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. What greatly displeased Jonah? That the Ninevites repented and God gave them mercy. He didn't bring about the destruction. So obviously, Jonah is aware of the fact that 40 days are over and the city's still standing and God has relented. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. What a big baby. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Jonah says, you know, we were talking in my small group a few weeks ago, one of the questions uh, where I was asked is, why do you think Jonah ran away? And we were talking about chapter 1. Why, why did Jonah run away? Why did Jonah flee from God? And we talked about how bad and scary the Assyrians are. And we were like, well, it makes sense. He was terrified. He, he was scared. I can understand it. Well, now we get a full explanation of why. Jonah wanted them to get what they deserved. He had obviously a personal beef with the Assyrians. He had obviously a grudge against them. He wanted them to fry. He wanted them to get what they deserved. And he knew that when, when God approached them and said, go and speak to the city of Nineveh, he knew that there was a possibility 
that God would see their repentance if they chose to and would relent and not bring them to destruction. He says it. He says, I know you are a God of grace and compassion. And we're like, oh, yeah. You know that firsthand, don't you, Jonah? God didn't destroy you when you flat out told him no, when you flat out ran away from him, when you flat out disobeyed him, when you knew better. God didn't destroy you. In fact, he brought you to salvation. He disciplined you and brought you to a place where you repented and you said, okay, I will do what you say. I will obey what you command. I will honor you. He gave you grace. Then he gave you an assignment. But you forget the grace you received is also the grace that God gives. See, Jonah was okay to receive grace and praise God for his kindness, but he was not happy when others, when others didn't get what they deserve, when others were not treated fairly like he was. Now, it's interesting to know what God has to say to Jonah, and we're going to, this is a two-part thing. Uh, next week, we'll go into the, the second part of the story, but we're going to go to here at verse 4. It's interesting that God says, do you have any good reason to be angry? Now, it's an interesting question that I want you to hold on to. We're going to come to this at the end of this, this, this journey together through this text. We're going to come to the end of this. I, I just, I just want to let, let you know... Um, the story of Jonah is fascinating to me. It's an odd book. And I think it was odd even to the Israelites, the Hebrews who first got it. It's a, it's a strange story, a fish swallowing a man. He, uh, he's arguing with God. He's doing all this stuff. And you think about the character of Jonah himself. And, and to be honest with you, um, I don't like Jonah. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, he's a baby. I hate babies. I hate whiners. I hate people that don't do what they're told to do by a higher power. I mean, that's just something in me that if someone, you know, subverts authority, I get, like, fired up about that stuff. I, I think Jonah is, is, is selfish. He's weak. He's mean-spirited. He's a baby. I don't really like him, but the problem, truth be told, and I'm just being transparent here, the real reason I don't like Jonah is because looking at the story of Jonah is like looking in a mirror for me. I'm Jonah. I'm a baby sometimes. I can tell people to trust God, but then I can throw a fit when things don't go my way because I'm worried about my money. I can encourage people to bold, bold, pray bold prayers, but when I pray a bold prayer and it doesn't get answered in the way I think it should, uh, I get all depressed and sad and mad at God. I can be grateful that God forgives me for lying, but if someone lies to me, oh boy, they're going to pay. They're going to fess up. They're going to get it. See, like Jonah, I can pledge that I understand God's grace and be grateful that I am a child of God living by grace forgiven. But there are many times where uh, I want grace for me, but I want justice for everyone else, especially when it gets personal especially when it's something that's heartfelt. I'm like Jonah. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle to be able to be a recipient of grace and then to live by grace in the world. It's a struggle. 
And I'm grateful that we have the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah gives me a roadmap to see this is you, Didi, and this is a lesson that you need to take to heart. It's interesting, in Paul's letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he wrote a letter basically explaining to them the message he was preaching. He wanted to visit them in person, couldn't, so he sent a letter instead saying, I'm going to follow up with this. And he basically said, this is what it means to be made right with God. He said, we have two ways that we can possibly write with God. There's the way of law, which says keep the law, escape the penalty, break the law, suffer the penalty. And he said, no matter who you are, Jew or non-Jew, all of us are lawbreakers and therefore are deserving the penalty that God prescribes in his word, describes in the law. We all deserve punishment. But he said, thanks be to God that he provides a different way, a way that's not reliant on my performance, but instead is reliant on the goodness and faithfulness of God. It's the way of grace. The way of grace works this way. It says, uh, those of us who are lawbreakers get to escape the penalty. Why? Because one who kept the law perfectly, his name's Jesus, suffered the penalty for me. You're like, yeah, that's not fair. Yeah, exactly. It's grace. And I don't want God treating me fairly that way. I want God treating me with grace because I know I deserve punishment. And so Paul explains this, right? And he explains how grace works and how God has provided grace through the work of Jesus, dying for us on the, on the cross and coming back to life again three days after conquering death once for all. And he says, if you believe, you will receive forgiveness, you will be treated as if you did not sin, and you will be counted as a child of God, restored in a relationship that you have wanted since the beginning of your birth. And then he says in something interesting, he said, in living this out, though, let's acknowledge it's a struggle. Although we're called to live by grace, we have this tendency to always want to operate by performance and by law. And so he lays this out very interestingly in chapter 7 about the struggle. Verse 15 says, For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the, that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in, my, in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, part of my body. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, I know that can kind of be sounding confusing, but I think the point is I think we get this tension that's being, being described by Paul that he's like, okay, uh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to, to live by faith but not to operate by law. It's a struggle. Like, like Jonah, we, 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 we love that God forgives us, but there are certain aspects where we want it to be fair, 
particularly in relation to other people that we're connected to, right? We want it to be fair. There's a story that Jesus tells that I think brings us home for us. One day, Peter, one of his guys, says to him, hey, um, this is in Matthew chapter 18, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who offends me? And I think he thought he was pretty noble. And he goes, seven times? Because, you know, seven's a godly number. I think he's trying to be like old churchy. You know how the kids in Sunday school, if you ever went to Sunday school, they always like, Jesus. Every time there was a question asked, you know, Jesus. What's the capital of, what's the capital of Ohio? Jesus. No. Um, there were these kids that were always trying to say the right answers to be goody-goody. So I think maybe this is what Peter was doing. Okay. Uh, how many times should I forgive magnanimously? Seven times someone who offends me? And Jesus actually turns this whole thing on its head because he says, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And we kind of start thinking, what's he saying? We start figuring out what's he actually... The point that Jesus is making is it's not about how many times. It's the wrong question, Peter, when you fully understand grace, when you fully understand the mechanics of being a person who is forgiven by God and lives in this world as a forgiver. And then Jesus tells a story. It's a story about a king who audited his books. Tax time, I guess. And he's looking at his books, and he discovers that there's this guy who works for him, a servant, who owes him, and I'm using a colloquialism, might have been in the New Testament, buku bucks. A hundred thousand bags of gold, whatever that calculation, lots of money. I mean, Jesus was really strong on the exaggeration on how much this servant owed the king. King discovers this as irate, says, okay, bring the, bring the guy in front of me. Guy's brought before him and everything's laid out. King's like, okay, you need to pay up. You need to pay up. You need to get what you deserve. And what you deserve is that you, your wife, your kids will go into slavery, will sell you into slavery so as to recoup some of this money that you owe to me. I mean, even selling him into slavery, I mean, he might have been a good, a good guy, but I don't think he was worth that much, and his wife and his children were. So you know that, that it's, this is just a recouping of, of loss. The man falls before the king, and he cries out, forgive me, have mercy on me, and the king does something absolutely amazing. And Jesus said he was moved to compassion, and he forgave the debt. He didn't write it off or say, okay, here's a, a payment plan. You pay me here, when, how. No, he writes it off. Gone, nada, mulligan, free, free, free at last, right? And Jesus says the man gets up and he leaves the audience of the king. And as he's leaving, he runs into his buddy. And he remembers that his buddy, a fellow servant, owes him, Jesus says, a hundred silver coins, a couple of bucks, and he remembers that he owes him, and he goes, hey, grabs him by the scruff of neck, pay what you owe me. Guy's like, I'm sorry, I don't have the money. I'll, come on, give me mercy. Give, give me, help me out here. I can't do it. And he cries for mercy, but the servant who was forgiven much uh, won't have it. He says, no, no. And he forces him to be thrown into debtor's prison until he can pay off his five bucks owed Jesus is cutting to the heart of the matter right here. Jesus is really capturing for us the attitude of Jonah 
And honestly, the attitude of me, and let's be honest, sometimes the attitude of you. We're grace recipients, but we have a hard time being grace givers. We love it that God doesn't treat us fair when we really talk about it, but sometimes we like God not treating us fair, but we want to make sure He treats those others fairly, that they get what they deserve, right? He accepts us, but sometimes we're not willing to accept others that don't meet our standard. He forgives us, but a lot of times we're not willing to forgive others who offended us. He was kind and gracious to us, but we're not willing to be kind and gracious to the guy who cut us off on a way to work. He, won, he was willing to chase us down, but we're unwilling to do our part to chase those whom he's assigned to us to introduce to Christ. See, we like being grace recipients, but we have a hard time living out grace. And so the servant is brought before the king because the other servants find out about it, and he's brought before the king, and the king says something interesting to him. He says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. And he points to the fact that the servant dishonored the gift he had received by his actions of being unwilling to forgive his fellow servant. He did not respond in the way that I believe that we is the appropriate response to grace, to the heart of the matter, to what Jesus is getting to. You see, Peter's question of, hey, how many times do I need to forgive, was a question that had to do with establishing a line, a limit to grace. And if you put a fence around grace, it's no longer grace. If you choose to put a hedge a limit around grace, then what you're doing is you say, well, this is grace, but if you cross the line, now we get into fair, into law, and you, you can't do it. Once you put a limit onto grace, it no longer becomes grace, it becomes law, right? And what Jesus is saying is the question is not how many times I should forgive. No, the question needs to be not how much, but thank you. See, the response of the king in, in condemning the servant that he has thrown into the prison to receive what he deserved, the response of the king was, hey, should you have not simply been grateful and lived in that gratitude? See, this is the message that we get to Jonah. Jonah, 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 you know God is gracious. God did not give you and what you deserved, and God does not want to give you what he deserved because he's provided you this way of grace. Simply be grateful. Say thank you. And so I was pretty pleased with myself. I came up with this little thing, uh, emojis. How about that? God does not want to give me what I deserve. Thank you. Right? Smiley face, 
praise, prayer faith, and then what's that? Clappy praise hands, right? That is where we need to be. And that's the story of Jonah, the point of Jonah, and that's the point of the story of the, the servant that, that wouldn't forgive his brother. It's not about how much, it's about thank you. Paul says in, in Romans 12, he says, let your life be a living sacrifice. And we, we tend to think of that in a negative, but it's not meant to be a negative. It's in a positive. Make your life a daily offering of thank you. And when you live in that place, when you live appreciative of what God has been done for you, you have an attitude in which you approach others as a grace giver. You are a forgiveness receiver. Be a forgiveness giver. You are a love receiver. Be a love giver. You are a patience receiver. Be a patience giver. You are one that, that, that was seen, so then see people as God sees them. Align your life to a, a life of gratitude, being motivated by what you do to just say, thank you, I don't deserve this. Thank you, I don't deserve this. Who are you? Or what, what is this to you, God says to, know, uh, to Jonah? What, what, what was basically, do you have a right to be angry? I mean, think about this. Who do you think you are, Jonah? Who do you think you are, Didi, to demand justice? And I got to thinking about this, and, and it kind of goes back to the story. How is it that God says that? Well, I realized, you know what? God forgave me in the story of grace for things that I, that I deserve punishment for, separation. I deserve everything that the law prescribes because of my, my bad behavior, my bad attitude, my, my stepping out of the line that God definitely, I don't want to get what I deserve. I just want God to treat me fairly. No, you don't. Don't be stupid. You don't want God treating you fairly because if you're fairly, you're going to be crushed, burned. You don't want to treat God treat you fairly, right? And guess what? The offenses that I have given to me personally, while they're offense to me, I need to remember, and this is to the question, do you have a right to be angry, are also an offense to God. You know, every sin, every wrongdoing, every bad action, every hurt, that's an offense to God. So, and God is far holier, far just, far more righteous than me. And so in terms of the, the level of offense, offenses done to me are far more offensive to God. And God chooses to offer grace. I need to remember that. I need to remember that. God doesn't want to give me what I deserve. Thank you. And I'm glad that he doesn't want to give you what you deserve. Interesting that Jesus points out the fact that we have a decision to make in our daily walk of faith. At the end of chapter 18, this is what he says at the end of the story. So this is how my heavenly father, he's talking about the king, will treat each of you. And he's referring to the fact that the king basically has the servant that owed him millions. He, put, he has him receive justice, right? He says, this is how it's going to happen to you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, Peter. It's not about how many times. 
It's about an attitude in which you appreciate what God has done for you, and you don't count how many times because that's the way of law, and we don't live by the way of law. Do you see what's happening here? See, there's two ways to operate in life. There's the way of grace that God gives to us, and we live by faith and appreciative of what He has done by the power of God, the transformational life, the change that happens as we grow, and then there's the way of law. And if you accept God... It's grace, but you want to operate and insist on operating the law and everyone else get what they deserve, guess what? God's saying, well, then you've chosen your path and you will get what you deserve. The measure you dealt out for the others will be the measure brought on you. And so the challenge is, hey, let's make this daily decision. It's a process. Paul shows us it's a process of growth where we are thankful for the grace of God, looking for the work of God, and seeking to live by that appreciation and apply it in our lives. What God, God doesn't want to give me what I deserve. Thank you. And this is not to, to minimize legitimate hurts, We've been hurt deeply. I know a lot of you have been let down, betrayed, abused, lied to. You've had bad stuff happen to you. This is not to minimize it. It's not to say sweep it on the rug. You're not supposed to feel angry or hurt. No, actually this is to embrace it and to say, you know what? These things need to be brought out because forgiveness cannot be given unless I detail the hurt, and yet I detail the hurt and I let it go in the name of Jesus because... He has forgiven me, and that gives me uh, the opportunity now to be free in providing forgiveness, in providing grace, in providing the gift He gives me to be free of the way of law and to live life by the way of grace. God does not want to give me what I deserve. Thank you. Smiley face, prayer hands. Woo! Praise hands. I'm really pleased with my emojis. <laughs> so who do you need to forgive? Who are you burning with the desire for them to get what they deserve? Where you've taken up the offense, mad because of fair. Who, who do you need to let go what attitude needs to be submitted to grace? Which people are you avoiding and have a judgment against and don't want to bring into your world? Because they don't look like us. They don't have political party affiliation like us. They don't see the world like us. They don't have the same skin color as us. They don't speak kind of funny from us. God does not want to give me what I deserve, nor them. Thank you. We live by grace. We live by grace. And we let God, God be the determinant of when judgment and righteousness happens. It's not us. Tom and Harry are both here, and they are available to uh, pray with you if you'd like after we've dismissed. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed, but these guys are available. They're also available to you to talk about next steps. You know, we witnessed Ella making a decision 
to be a Jesus follower. And what Ella witnessed to us is that the message of salvation is captured in everything done. She was, she was raised in a home in which mom and pa, no, mom and dad. Anyway, I speak for a living. It's been a long day. Too much coffee. Sorry, Mark. Sorry. But they were shared the gospel and family and friends and church, and, and she made that decision. She made that decision because she knew that on her own she can't be made right with God by law, by works. She came to realize that she's under the law and her performance is not good enough for perfection required to be right with God in that manner. And so she accepted the offer of grace. And she took it on her own by belief and she was baptized. And so Ella was buried as Jesus was buried and brought back to life filled with the Spirit to live a new life and to live a new way by grace. That's available to anyone who would accept Jesus. And if you want to talk about that, if you want to discuss that, you want to do that, you want to accept that, these guys are available. They can talk to you and point you in the right direction. The baptistry is fired up and warm. I encourage you to make that decision. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you don't treat us, uh, you don't give us what we deserve. As far as uh, your economy and as far as what is right, um, though we might try to make a good case that we're good people, nice people, good-looking people, talented people, whatever we might think, uh, truth is, is that we fall short. And uh, we fall short and we need grace. We need option, the option that's open. I'm thankful that Jesus brings that grace and then brings us into a life of grace where we're called to live in gratitude, not by rules per se, but by a desire to do what honors you as our life no longer belongs to us, but is from you and for you and with you. I pray that you guide us and help us to live in this way, to work through those things that perhaps we need to work through in our struggle, people we need to forgive, people we need to, to release from, from, from the desire for them to get what they deserve in our minds. Uh, help us to, to learn to live in a manner that is a blessing, a gift, to daily commit to, to honoring you, to, to live gratefully, to live thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.